We're going to be studying again, as you know, from the Revelation, and we are at uh, the sixth of the seven churches, uh, chapter three. Uh, the church in Philadelphia is where we are. If you want to see a map of uh, where these churches are one more time, just as a reminder, you can see how they work around like a horseshoe kind of shape. Um, and we're at number six, the church at Philadelphia. Uh, these churches are located on a travel route, and so consequently uh, they, have tr they have traffic in and out of their city, some of them more so than others because they had multiple travel routes passing through their cities, um, Philadelphia being one of those. You can see that these churches were located in the area today of, of Turkey. It's, it's across the Aegean Sea from, from Athens, Greece, and so you get a picture of, of where these churches are. And then the second slide we've been showing you every week, we took five words, and I told you that all of these churches fit into a pattern, the counselor, the commendation, the chastening, the counsel, and the challenge. The counselor means there's going to be something about Jesus that's said, some description of Jesus. The commendation, you're doing good in this, way to go, that's what you should be doing. The chastening or the correction, there'll be some kind of correction or chastening that's offered to them. There's counsel. Here's what I want you to do, and then there's a challenge. Uh, like you're going to hear tonight, he that has ears, let him hear. Uh, there's a challenge that is offered, and all seven of the churches fall into uh, that, that pattern. Uh, that alliteration comes from Dr. Harold Wilmington. I don't claim any originality for that, uh, but he doesn't claim any originality for the pattern either that arises from these seven churches. And so as you think about it, you want to continue to think about that pattern. And we pick up in verse 7 where we left off, the church at Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, now, who have I said to you is most likely the angel? It's most likely the pastor. It's most likely uh, the, the one who is the preacher in the church. It could be a literal angel, uh, but that would be an unusual description in a church setting of this kind. Besides, can you imagine an angel delivering this revelation to people sitting in the pews, that would be sort of, if an angel showed up tonight, other than me, if, if an angel showed up tonight uh, and uh, started to bring the message, don't you think, well, number one, you'd sit up really straight. You'd pay careful attention. I doubt I'd lose your attention. Um, it, it would just be an awkward kind of a situation. Could, not, could God do that? Certainly. But I think it's much more likely that these are the pastors of the church the, uh, these various churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things. Here's, here's, the, the, here's the, the counselor. Here's the description of Jesus. These things says he who is holy, who is true. He who is true. He who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Of course, the name Philadelphia means brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia here in the United States is the city of brotherly love, right? Unless you live in the wrong area. Uh, the city of brotherly love, uh, Philadelphia was about 70 miles east of Smyrna. And it is the only other church, Smyrna and Philadelphia, the only churches that did not get any chastening. They did not get any correction. The pattern works itself out, except in these two churches, they did not have any chastening or any, or any correction. Part of that in the church at Smyrna was because they were persecuted, and persecution has a way of purifying the church on its own. 
but this church here at Philadelphia also does not receive any correction for something that they were doing wrong and that needed to be uh, put right. Um, what's interesting about this particular description is that he says that Jesus has the key of David. It's a little bit like we would think uh, when we give somebody the key to the city, uh, although that's very symbolic. To have a key meant that you had authority, that you, were, you had a right to open a particular door, that, that you had the, the privilege of being able to do that. And, and so it says here that, that Jesus has the key of David, and it implies that he has the authority to open and close the door of access to all of God's riches and, and is sovereign over the household of David, on whose throne he's going to rule one day. Uh, in his kingdom. And so he has this key. He has the authority. He has the privilege. He has the right uh, to open the door. By the way, I forgot the video. We will show that at the end. We will show that at the end. Um, he has the authority to be able to do that. Verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. Remember that phrase, open door. I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength, have kept my word. You have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So they get commended. You've got a little strength. They're, they're not a big church. There's not a lot of people probably, but they are a church with a little strength. Uh, the people that are there are strong. They've kept his word. Rather than compromising like a lot of the other churches had done, they'd kept his word, and they've not denied his name in the face of the persecution that they did not deny the name of Jesus. They have st stood true uh, to their profession of faith. But it's interesting that he says here that the Lord has set before them an open door. Now, what is an open door? Well, at least two thoughts for you to consider, and we're not going to try to uh, force you into one or the other. Uh, the one that's most popular and most common is that the open door is a missionary opportunity of some sorts. Uh, this church had a number of trade routes that passed through it. That means a lot of people are coming to this city and going in and out of and passing uh, into the businesses and around the places of this city. And it very well may be that what he's saying here is that God has placed before the Philadelphian church this incredible evangelistic op opportunity that, that he's actually bringing people to them. And this open door is right there in their very presence. And he's obviously, if that's the case, he's encouraging to, to go out of that door, go in through that door and engage the people uh, that are passing through your area and go beyond your area. Go out to the, uh, you know, the far reaches and reach out through that open door so that you can reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm glad to tell you that for the most part, America has been a place, the American church has been a place where God has put an open door before us, an open door of evangelistic opportunity. Amen? Uh, that door is changing. That door is ever so slightly closing. It's not what it used to be. You understand that America used to sort of be the center of uh, evangelism and outreach to the world. Um, and more missionaries were going out of this country probably than any other place at any other time. But that has shifted. It shifted into Latin America. 
and the gospel and revival is taking place in Latin America in significant ways. As the culture in America has changed, the church has changed with the culture. Rather than calling the church, uh, the culture back to Christ, the church has drifted with the culture, and the result is that that door of opportunity is uh, at least closed to some degree. I don't believe it's totally closed, but it's closed to some degree. But God had placed before this church an open door. Can I just encourage you to pray for our church that God gives us multiple open doors? I like the kind of doors he's talking about, uh, doors that no one can shut. Uh, That's the kind of doors we want him to open. I was uh, interested to read about Generation Z. This is an article that I received in the last couple of weeks. Generation Z, I think they were born, well, I think the oldest of them would be 25. So you're talking 25 and under. And... uh, it's done this survey, and it says, Generation Z believers want to share about Jesus, and they are having deep, personal conversations about their faith with their friends. Amen. That's great news. Praise the Lord. Young people talking about Jesus, I love it. Don't you? I love it when old people talk about Jesus. I love it when any people talk about Jesus. Young people talking about Jesus. Uh, Part of this article says, despite their long exposure to social media, or perhaps because of it, Gen Z Christians are not, I love this, are not big advocates for digital evangelism. Praise the Lord. I hope that's true. I hope the study's accurate. Uh, Because they recognize what? Uh, Well, I'll just tell you. Um, Let me find it here. Here's what it says. They are fiercely relational. They need to be present with one another, and physical presence matters to them. Praise the Lord. Isn't that good news? That's young people. I love young people. I love our young people. They're awesome. They're incredible. Don't criticize them. Brag on them. Love them. Uh, Congratulate them. And they're a part of that generation, or at least... uh, You know, they're part of that generation. And we've got an open door. God placed an open door before this church. It's also possible that this open door refers to what takes place in chapter 4, verse 1. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. We will get to this in in two weeks. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Not only can this door represent the evangelistic opportunity that was presented to this church in Philadelphia, but it also can refer to the fact that Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to call you up into my presence. Uh, I'm going to bring you into my presence through the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, when the dead in Christ rise and when the living are caught into his presence. So it it can refer to that as well. Chapter 3, verse 9, he goes on. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Wow, this is, this is some kind of church, isn't it? Synagogue of Satan, we've seen that before. These are people who are Jewish uh, in heritage, uh, but they are opposed to Christ and they're opposed to Christianity and they're opposed to the gospel. And so they are working against all that this church is trying to accomplish. But 
Jesus says to this church that you're going to be the one who sees the victory in this. What does it mean to come and worship before your feet? Well, what does the Bible say every knee will do? Every knee will bow. And there will be a day when every person who has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ will have to bow his knee. He may reject Christ. He may shake his fist in the face of Christ. He may curse the name of Christ. But there will be a day when he has to bow the knee and proclaim Christ to be exactly who he says he is. And guess who will be there at that moment? You and I will be watching this as it unfolds. And when he says that he's going to have them come and worship before your feet, not going to worship them, going to worship Jesus. And they're going to see that Jesus actually loved these Christians in Philippi, in Philadelphia, excuse me, in Philadelphia. Verse 10, because you have kept my commandment to persevere. I like that. They've kept his commandment. They've persevered. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. Now, what is the trial that's coming on the whole world? That's what we're about to read in the Revelation. It's the tribulation period. And he says, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let you go through that. Here, here's one of the great promises. Uh, I, don't, I don't think believe that the Scripture teaches that believers in Jesus in the church age go through the tribulation. That God calls us out before the tribulation. Uh, he removes us. So the last person to be saved, who's a part of this age, when they're saved, the Lord Jesus comes, we're out of here. There'll be people saved after that, but they won't be part of the church age that we are a part of today. And all of those that are part of the church age will be caught out before that day that he's talking about, this hour of trial which shall come upon. You'll notice it doesn't come on part of the world. It doesn't come on just the Middle Eastern world. It comes on how much of the world? The whole world. And that's what's going to unfold in the rest of the Revelation, this tribulation that, uh, that takes place over the entire earth, uh, over the entire world. Verse 11, behold, I come quickly, he says. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Hold fast. Don't, don't, uh, don't give in. Don't compromise like some of the other churches. Stay faithful. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing good things. There's an open door before you. You're not going to go into the tribulation. That's my promise to you. It may be tough. You may feel like you're in the tribulation, but I promise you, you're not going into the tribulation don't let those that are threatening you frighten you. Uh, just, just be faithful uh, to the task. And he said, if you'll do that, you won't lose your crown. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, uh, about, the, um, about the five crowns. And I was asked about it, so I'm going to give you those five crowns. You can write them down if you want. And then if you read the passage of Scripture that I give to you that goes with each of the five crowns, you will see how you earn that crown. You know, there, there's a misunderstanding here. So let's just, just get your paper ready and get your pen ready, and we'll write these five crowns down in just a moment. But there's a misunderstanding here. You don't do anything to be saved. You are saved by grace through faith. It has all been done for you uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, and you receive Christ solely by faith, trusting in him. That's, that's what it means to become a Christian. But when you become a Christian, while you can't work for your salvation, you can work to earn rewards. 
And at the judgment seat of Christ, we will stand before the Lord and we will have to give an account of the works that we have done and whether they are worthy of being rewarded. And amongst those rewards are going to be these five crowns that are given to people um, for these different reasons. They're all listed in the passages of Scripture that go with them. The first is the imperishable crown. Imperishable. I-M-P-E-R-I-S-H-A-B-L-E. Imperishable crown. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 25. The imperishable crown. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 25. The second is the crown of rejoicing. The crown of rejoicing. That's 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. The crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. The third is the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. That's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. The fourth is the crown of glory. The crown of glory. And that passage is 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And then there's the crown of life, the crown of life. That's Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. We read it earlier uh, when talking about one of the churches, Revelation 2, 10. So you have the imperishable crown, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. The crown of rejoicing, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. The crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4.8. The crown of glory, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5.4. And the crown of life, Revelation 2.10. So you have these different crowns. Uh, they're diadems. It's like a wreath that they gave in the Greek games that you wore. That If you won the race, you, you got to wear this wreath. It's something that you wear that shows that you have earned it. You can't earn your salvation, but you earn the rewards that God will give, some of them being these crowns. And there are other rewards, I'm sure, that the Lord's going to give. Uh, he says, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, that he'll reward you, right? So there are other rewards that he'll give, but those are the five crowns that he talks about. And, and he says here to the, the church at, uh, at Philadelphia, uh, let me go back here to my notes. He says to the church that I want you to hold fast that no one may take your crown. So these rewards are things that you can earn. These rewards are things that you can lose. Now your salvation you can never lose. The salvation is what you have in Jesus. It's settled once and for all and forever when you trust in Christ. You are eternally secure. But why would you want to earn crowns? Why would you want to earn rewards? Well, we'll get to this when we get over to chapters 4 and 5. But what do the 24 elders in the heavenly scene where they're around the throne of God, the 24 elders that represent you and me, what do they do with those crowns? They take them and what do they do? They cast them at the feet of Jesus. Because the only one who is worthy of praise is Jesus. Even the crowns that we earn are crowns that he made possible by his enabling power. And we don't walk around heaven saying, look, I got four crowns. You only got two. <laughs> look at all my rewards, you know, like you, like you do on an Iwana shirt. You know, you got all the pins. That you're, I got 42 pins. How many do you have? <laughs> you know, it, you don't do that in heaven. 
in heaven, uh, you're going to give them all back to Jesus because Jesus is the only one worthy or deserving of the praise. And so he says, I don't want you to lose the crown. You can lose the reward for the works that you're doing, but you can never lose your eternal life, your eternal salvation. If you'll notice what he says, um, verse 12, he who overcomes, that's that's a term for who? Overcomers are who? They're believers. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will write on him my new name. Very reminiscent of the white stone that we saw earlier where the name is written on the stone. But here the image is a little different. This is probably a reference to a practice that was sometimes used to honor a famous person in Philadelphia. Uh, They had a pillar that was uh, hewn from rock and made, and on it was inscribed the name of the honoree. And then it was placed in some of these pagan temples. He's talking about, uh, you know, in the New Jerusalem. But it's placed in these pagan temples and so that everybody went by and and they saw them. Think of the uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame, right? You, You go down, I've never been there, I don't know. I really don't have any interest to go to Hollywood to see the Walk of Fame. Most of them, it's the Walk of the Infamous. Y'all, y'all didn't get that, I don't think. But <clears throat> you, you walk by and you say, I'd like to see Bob Hope. That's that, you know, I'd like to see, I'm trying to think of some, who, Don Knotts. I'd like to see Don Knotts. I sort of fit his pattern. I'm sort of, a, I'm sort of the Don Knotts of the world. Um, you know, I'd like to see some of those. You, you see the star. It's a constant reminder of that person. Well, there are these pillars that are like a constant reminder, like a heavenly walk of fame. Uh, People who are remembered. And the name is inscribed on it. I mean, this is an honor. And so that's sort of the picture that he's drawing for us uh, as he tells us about these these pillars that will be placed in the temple of of my God. Um, And then you'll never leave again. Now, is that literal or is that symbolic? Well, I think it's probably uh, both, but in the symbol, symbol, uh, symbolism aspect, I mean, we're going to be in heaven. It's, we're going to be there. Nobody can remove us from there. We are forever in that place. Uh, you, you don't leave heaven. I mean, uh, you, I mean, in the sense of coming back to the troubles and the trials of this earth, right? You, you, would you invite your loved ones that have gone to heaven to come back here? No way. No way. No way. And he's given us a permanent place uh, in his very presence. And then he finishes in verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so you get a little bit of an idea. There's a lot more detail when you get the book. You can read the additional detail. But um, that's the idea of what he's saying to the church at Philadelphia. And then we get to the church in, in Laodicea. Uh, Laodicea is located about 100 miles east, due east of Ephesus. You remember seeing it on the map. It went around, and it was sort of even with each other. Um, But it's more inland. Uh, Laodicea was known for its wool industry. It was a manufacturing place of eye salve to help with conditions of the eye. It was a city that was basically self-sufficient. 
But I want you to notice what he says here, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. The beginning of the creation of God, that's a reference to Jesus. Uh, Well, we're going to talk about that in a moment. But I want you to understand that Laodicea is a prominent city. Um, The one difficulty that the city city of Laodicea had was that the water system that brought them the water, uh, you know, delivered to them lukewarm water. And it was a sickening kind of a taste. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. He says that he's the beginning here, talking about Jesus. This is the this is the counselor. He is the beginning of the creation of God. You say, well, wait a minute, you mean Jesus was the created one? That's not what he's saying at all. There's different shades of meaning to this Greek word translated beginning. One shade of meaning is the first of something in order. Uh, like you talk about your children. Well, this is the oldest, and this is the middle child, and this is our youngest. And you're talking about an order. But there are other shades of meaning to the word for beginning. A second shade of meaning is the origin or the source of something. So he would be saying that he's the source, he's the origin of the creation of God. Wouldn't that be true? That absolutely would be true. There's nothing made that was made, how? Without him. There was nothing made that was made, the scripture says, without him. The third shade of meaning is the idea of the ruler or the principality of something. And so either of those last two fits with exactly what he's saying. You say, could it be that Jesus was the created one? Absolutely not. It's a a preposterous idea. Colossians chapter 1, if you want to write it down, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, put that to rest. He could not be the first of God's creation. He is God, and he is the source of everything, and he is the ruler over it all. And those two other shades of meaning are what are being discussed here in uh, the 14th verse about the church at Laodicea. He says about them, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. Think about it for a moment. Six miles north of Laodicea was the city of Aeropolis. And that city enjoyed hot springs. You ever been in a hot spring? Hot springs, Georgia. You ever been to hot springs, Georgia? Uh, remember when the, somebody been to Hot Springs, Georgia? Uh, what did I say? Warm Springs, Georgia, with the hot springs. Anybody been to Warm Springs, Georgia? Nobody's been to to the the little white house other than us, honey. I don't, you know, that's. I mean, we sort of grew up around the corner here. Um, you, where the president went, Roosevelt went because of polio, and he got down in the in the hot springs. Fascinating place to go if you ever get to Georgia, which you're going to have to go through there to get to heaven, so you might as well go on down there and make a visit. (laughs) And there was, uh, in Aeropolis, these hot springs. Well, 11 miles to the east of the city of Laodicea was the city of Colossae, and they had clean, cold water. But the city of Laodicea Though they were a wealthy church in a wealthy city, they didn't have either cold or hot water. Now, cold or hot, either one would have been beneficial. The hot water, obviously, for aches and pains. The cold water for, you know, drinking it and and making you feel comfortable and good. 
uh, when you're hot. So that, you know, those, those, they had beneficial effects. But the water that came through the aqueduct system to Laodicea, by the time it got to the city, it was lukewarm. You ever had lukewarm water? My mother said the only kind of water to drink was right out of the tap. I don't, mother, I don't want water right out of the tap. It's lukewarm. I want it cold. Put it in the freezer. Put it in the refrigerator. Put ice in it. Are any of y'all like that? How many of you drink it right out of the tap? Lukewarm. Okay. Okay, we have some other sick people in the church as well. <laughs> I can uh, remember, some of you will remember her name when I say it, Burl Cyrus. Uh, Burl Cyrus is a member of our church, and Burl was so good to Mary and me, and we loved him dearly. Actually, he's the man who helped us to, to move out of the parsonage and into our own house. So we owe him a, a lifetime debt of gratitude. But he had goats. And I was having some stomach trouble. You know, I was having the, the pastor's disease that you know, every pastor gets. And, and Burl said, you need to try goat's milk. Now, he had goats. And he'd milk the goats. And, um, and then he'd strain it. You'd take the uh, cloth and you'll pour the milk through it and it picks the hair out of it, <laughs> gets the hair out of it, and, and then he'd bring it to us. Am I telling the truth? Oh, Amy's here. Yes, his granddaughter's sitting out over here. Amy, can, it's Amy I'm telling the truth, aren't I? And he'd strain the milk, and he'd bring it to us, and then he'd, he'd leave it with me, and he'd say, he'd, say, now, he'd say, now, preacher, make sure to get it good and cold. I could drink it if it was really cold. But if it wasn't cold, just came from the goat, this old goat didn't like it. I mean, it was disgusting. I mean, freeze it a little bit. I mean, get it really cold. You get a hair going down every once in a while. But beyond that, <laughs> hey, by the way, it worked. I don't know what's in goat's milk that's not in cow's milk or what, you know, I don't know. But it worked. And it helped me. And, but I had to drink it cold. And he's talking about that kind of an idea. You know, he wishes the water was hot or cold. It would be beneficial one way or the other. But because it's lukewarm, listen to what he does with it. Verse 16, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll spew you out of my mouth. What is a lukewarm church? How does a lukewarm church affect Christ? It makes him sick. It makes him sick. We either need to get in or we need to, you know, we need to get in. That's what we need to do. We don't want to get out. We want to get in. We need to go all in with Jesus. We need to go in full obedience to Jesus Christ. And uh, we need to follow the Lord with all of our hearts. Verse 17, because you say, here's the reason why they make them sick, why they are lukewarm. Because you say, this is how you talk about yourselves. I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's a pretty strong indictment, wouldn't you say? Just because you got money doesn't mean you're right. This church had a lot of money, apparently, but it didn't mean they were right with God. And you can see Jesus, I mean, he's putting his finger on the very things that they placed such importance on. These ancient aristocrats felt what, what they felt when Jesus said, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. I mean, they had plenty of money. They had a booming woolen industry, a clothing industry. They were known for their school of ophthalmology. And they'd made all of this money, 
that rather than being on fire for Christ and being deeply passionate about the Lord, they were just going through the motions. There was a mechanical aspect to it. Verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments that you may be clothed the shame of your nakedness may, may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So he picks up the things that they were used to with their wealth, these nice garments uh, so that they're not naked and they, they're, they're clothed, their eyes. You need to get the things that I offer more than you need to get what that store down there offers you. You get the idea? I mean, he's indicting them. Verse 19, as many as I love, he says, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And so he gives them this correction, and he tells them what he wants them to do. They've got to come back to him. But then as he finishes out talking about the, the Laodiceans, he, he gives this description. Where is Jesus in this church? He's outside. Where should Jesus be? He ought to be right in the middle of everything. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's outside. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, if anyone, even if the whole church won't do it, if there's just one on the inside that'll hear the knocking on the door and just open the door, I'll come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Isn't that a great passage? A lot of people use that to talk about salvation. They say, you know, if you'll just open the door of your heart and invite Christ in, uh, he'll come in and he'll save you from your sins. And I have no problem with sharing the, the, the gospel that way. But that's not what he's saying here. These were believers. Who gets disciplined? Only his children. Only Christians get chastened. If you don't have chastening, he says, you're none of mine. You're not one of my children. The book of Hebrews. So these are believers. These are believers whose hearts have gotten cold toward the Lord, indifferent, I should say, toward the Lord. If it was cold or hot, that would have been all right, but it was, they were indifferent. They were lukewarm toward the Lord. They had, a, they had a rich church. They had everything they wanted, but their eyes, you know, your physical eyes may be in good shape, but your spiritual eyes need the salve that I can give. You may dress in the fine, fancy clothing, but the clothing you really need is what I can provide for you. You need to come and buy it from me. You need to come back to me. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to chasten you if you don't do that. That's, these are Christians. This is a Christian church, and Christ is outside the church. And he's knocking in order to get in, and he's asking if there's just one person on the inside who will say, yes, I'll let you in. And I'll come in, and he says, and I'll have fellowship with you. Isn't that what God created us for? He created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden to fellowship with him. And because of sin, the fellowship was broken. But then God took the animal skins and covered them, sacrificed the animals and covered them with the animal skins. And uh, though he put them out of the garden, he invited them to come back into fellowship with him. Isn't that what God wants for all of us, is to live in fellowship with him? Uh, verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Here's, again, the rewards. Here's the privileges that will come to you if you live for the Lord and do what's right. As I also overcame and sat down with my Father on the throne. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says uh, to the churches. And therein is the great struggle that we have. We have churches that listen to the world rather than listen to the Spirit of God. 
We're more interested in being relevant than we are being right with the Lord. And that's never a good thing. Now, when we start back in chapter 4, we're going to move into a heavenly scene, and that's where all of you want to be. So we're going to get caught up into heaven with John. Uh, I was asked recently, how did John go to heaven? Does he go physically, bodily, into the presence of the Lord, or was he called out in a dream? I'm going to answer that question um, when we come back together.